As last week where we left off, we saw how God started again in a sense. He chose a new man. This name was Abram. And he, in his vast wisdom, said, I'm going to give you a son, and I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And this nation is going to be the new image bearers of me, and they're going to be a blessing to the whole world. And God chose this old, you know, he's in his 80s. Has him and his wife, he's like, they have no kids, and like, this is who I'm going to start this new nation with, right? Like, people like, not ready, not in a place to be, to be parents. And so um, he says, leave your people, leave your land, go to this place, I'm going to promise you, and he did that. And the cool thing about our story is that we see that Abraham, we, we see the first glimmers of how the gospel works. It says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. We see that righteousness was infused through trusting God and his promises. And we see that that is the pattern for the rest of scripture. It's not like in the Old Testament, God's like, you gotta do all this stuff and then you're okay. And then in the New Testament, it's like, no, it's by grace, by faith. We see that pattern going on from day one. And so our story picks up today with Abraham's descendants living in Egypt. And so if we were to read, we'd be through Genesis chapter 37 through 50. And so his descendants were in Egypt. They've been in Egypt for about 400 years, okay? Now, how did they get there? Well, Abraham had a son named Isaac, the promised son. And that Isaac had two sons named Jacob and Esau. And Esau was kind of the rebel, and Jacob was a little thief, And God's like, Jacob is the one. They were twins. Jacob's the one I'm going to fulfill my promises through. And so Jacob has 12 sons. And then his, but he has a favorite. His favorite son is named Joseph. And Joseph was the second to youngest. And he was, uh, I don't know if he was, like what his deal was, but he kept having these dreams about everybody bowing down to him. And he thought it'd be a good idea, already being the favorite, to tell his brothers, hey, by the way, I had this dream. And uh, you're bowing down to me, and I'm ruling over you. You can only imagine how that went. After a while, and over and over again, they hated him, um, and they wanted to kill him, actually. Um, And they didn't kill him, but they ended up selling him into slavery. And he got sent down to Egypt. They told their dad that he was killed by a wild animal, and and he went into a, a state of permanent mourning. And so he goes down to Egypt, and we see that God was faithful to Joseph, and he showed him much favor. And Joseph um, had so much favor that he kind of, everywhere he went, he excelled. He did end up in jail because he got lied about, but even in jail, God used that opportunity, and it happened that the baker and the butler, it sounds like a fairy tale, but it's not, they got put in prison because one of them was trying to kill Pharaoh, and they each had a dream, and Joseph interpreted the dream, and he was right on the money. And he said, this is the person that's trying to kill you. This is the one that's um, basically the good guy. He didn't do anything wrong. And years later, that guy remembers what Joseph did and because Pharaoh had a dream. And Pharaoh had a dream, we find out, as he asks Joseph to come and interpret the dream, that there's going to be a great famine in the land of Egypt. That it was going to be seven years, not just in the land of Egypt, but all over. Seven years of good and produce and flourishing and seven years of famine. And so Joseph interprets this, tells him what's happening, 
And Pharaoh goes, who better to lead the charge on how we're to survive as a nation than you? And he puts him in control of everything in the whole nation with the exception of the throne. And Joseph starts implementing ways to collect and, and take all the produce of the first seven years. And he builds these great storehouses. And he got so great and so much that he quit even keeping track of how much they had. And so as our story is going, I'm telling you, we're, ra- we're rallying. Abram, I mean, uh, Jacob and his sons, they also experienced the famine. And they said, where can we get bread to survive? And so they said, Egypt has bread. So he sends his, he sends his sons to go get bread. And guess who's in charge? Joseph. They do not recognize him because he's full Egypt out right now, right? Might have the thing you see in pictures, you know, he's rocking, might be got some eye makeup on, right? It's always in the movies. Who knows what's going on, right? But they don't recognize him. He recognizes them, and he's like, oh, man, it's my time to, payback's coming, boys. Like, but he doesn't do that. He he tests them, but he he wants, he shows them favor. Anyway, fast forward, he keeps one of the sons, he freaks them out. It gets it's a little intense at times, but at the very end, he reveals himself to them. The whole time, he's showing them mercy. And I tell that part of the story because in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, as he's revealed himself to his brothers, they're freaking out because like, oh my gosh, this guy could end us right now. He says this. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. We see J- Joseph showing forgiveness to his brothers. But here's what's interesting. He doesn't show forgiveness because it wasn't that big of a deal. He actually calls it evil. Like imagine somebody like wronged you. Like that was evil. Like what you did was evil, right? He doesn't do that. He recognizes it was evil, but also he doesn't, he doesn't uh, forgive them because they didn't deserve it or, or that it wasn't that big of a deal. He recognized that God was at work. He acknowledged their sin. He understood that it wasn't like they made it right or, or, or apologized even, but it was that recognized that despite what you did, God was able to take this evil, wicked thing and make it good. And that's one of my favorite aspects about God, and this is one of the things as we're understanding his story, we're wanting to see characteristics and attributes of God that we can um, respond to and worship and trust more. And that is that God is a redeemer. God is able to take the sickest, grossest, most evil things in the world, and him and him alone is the only one that's able to make beauty come from that. It doesn't make it okay. It doesn't mean that it's like God's causing all this evil. No. God is at work. Evil is occurring. God didn't design evil to happen. It happened because of human brokenness and sin. But that God is able to take the worst things and bring good out of it. And as Joseph's telling his brothers, he's like, listen, God was the one that was faithful. God took this thing that was totally evil and he made it a good thing that brought salvation for, this, for all of our whole family, right? But God is the one that can take it and make it good. He's able to bring beauty out of ashes. And I think that's something to always remember. It's not that God, why is this happening to me? Why are you doing this to me? It's like, man, sometimes people are cruel and they do cruel things. But trusting that in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the brokenness, God and God alone can make this be something that's beautiful and that communicates something about himself, not only to me, but to the rest of the world. And so our story continues. God saves the, all of his family. They all move to Egypt, and that's where they live to, to carry out the entire um, famine, right? Jacob comes. 
all his wives, 12 sons, daughters, kids, tons of people roll in, and they begin to live in Egypt. Well, as time goes on, a pharaoh grows up that does not know who Joseph was or them, and he begins to be intimidated and afraid of how much they're growing, and he, what he does is he puts them and enslaves them and starts having them do all these building projects, and he's cruel, and he becomes more and more cruel, and he becomes more and more threatened to the point where he makes a proclamation that any boy that is born of the Israelites must be put to death. They throw him in the Nile River, and a woman has a boy, <clears throat> and they had a lot of midwives, and the midwives wouldn't, wouldn't do that, and they put this boy in a reed basket, and they send him down the, the river, and Pharaoh's daughter pulls him out of the water and says, I pulled him out, therefore his name is Moses. And she takes him in and adopts him into her home. And Moses grows up as a prince in Pharaoh's house. And at 40 years old, he starts recognizing, or maybe before that, but he starts realizing, I'm not Egyptian, and yet these are my people. He knows who he is. He knows his origin story. And at 40 years old, he declares, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And he kills an Egyptian and buries him in the sand. And he thinks he got away with it. But then... He didn't, and he got caught. And he gets thrown out of the city, and he gets taken out. Well, he leaves, not wanting to be murdered by Pharaoh, and he finds this little shepherd family out in the country, and they take him in, and he marries one of their daughters, and he becomes a shepherd, and he starts a new life at 40 years old. Which leads us to the next section, which I think is God's just where God shows up. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses is a shepherd. It's now been 40 more years, okay? Now he's 80. And he's out with his sheep, and he's walking around, and he sees a bush, and it's burning. And he's like, I'm going to go over and look at this burning bush that's not consumed. Like, I think all of us would do that, right? We see a a bush burning. And in Exodus chapter 3, the bush is not burning, and we see God showing up. And this is really cool. You have to keep in mind, God isn't just like showing up and communicating with humans, right? He started in the garden, and then had these moments where he reveals himself to people. And so at this moment in chapter 3, verse, I'm going to read verse 1 through 6. And it says this, Now Moses was keeping his flock in his father's house, Jethro, and the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb and the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight. Why is the bush not being burned? And when the Lord saw and he turned aside, um, God called him out of the bush, and Moses, and he said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near it. Take off your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So we see God showing up, speaking to human beings again. And he identifies himself instantly saying, I am the God of your fathers. But not only do we see that, we see that in this relationship with human beings and God, as we talked about, especially last week and the week before that, is there's still separation, right? There's still a level of like, we just can't run boldly, right? And it's like, hey, God, what's up? Right? There's this level of like, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. Do not come too near. Like there is this fear of God that is very, very present, right? And so there's still separation, right? Because Moses is still a sinner. There's still this, this limitation in the relationship between humans and God. 
But God identifies him so that my name, I am the God of your fathers, that's who it is. And he says, listen, I have been hearing the cries and, the, the, and all of this stuff going on from the children of Israel. I've, I've seen their affliction. I've heard all of these things. And I'm telling you, I'm coming to rescue them. Now is the moment. I don't know why God waited this long, but he did. He goes, I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to deliver them. And fun fact, I'm sending you to do it. And Moses is like, um, wait, what? That's pretty much how it goes down. Verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 13. He goes, I'm going to send you. And Moses is going, well, ah, there's a million other people. Who am I supposed to tell? Sent me. What's your name? Like, I know you're the God of, of my fathers. And in verse 13, he says this. And then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers sent me to you, and they ask me, well, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And this is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And so God identifies himself as the I am. And we're going to spend a little more time on that at the very end. But Moses hears this, right? And then he responds and he says, well, um, what if they don't listen? And he goes, well, I'm going to give you these special powers. Your, your staff will become a snake. Like, you have leprosy. Like, and, then, and then they'll listen to you. And then he goes, well, um, I'm not really good at talking. I don't talk well. And he's like, listen, I made the mouth. I will be with your mouth. And then finally Moses says, send somebody else. God, a little exasperated, goes, no, I'm going to send you, but I'll send your brother to help you. And so Moses goes, right? Imagine God's like, I'm going to give you these signs, and you're going to go, and you're going to rescue my people, and you're going to lead them out. And he goes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's like, heck no, they're not going anywhere. In fact, let's take straw out of the bricks. Let's make it harder on them. Let's increase their workload. Let's, be, let's make it worse. And then all the people are like, Why'd you do this to us, Moses? Why did you, like, ruin our lives, like our slave lives? But, like, why did you ruin our slave lives right now by making it worse, right? And they complain. And so God is, has to reveal that he is greater. And so he sends plagues on the nation of Israel, or on, the, on the, the nation of Egypt. Now, what's interesting is each one of these plagues that he sends are, uh, they are a version or an, a symbol of the different gods that the Egyptians feared and or worshipped. Right? And so we see that God is sending the very things that they worshiped to flood and destroy them and showing that I'm greater than your gods. And so he goes on for nine different plagues, just destroying Egypt completely. And each time, Pharaoh, at first it says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then we see coming up in the story that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He kind of solidified what was right there. And Pharaoh became more and more angry, more and more obstinate to letting them go until finally we come to the 10th plague. And God says, I'm going to kill every firstborn. And this is when we see the Passover come into play, which is such a beautiful part of the story. And I would say it's a key part of the story. Chapter 12, verse 1 of, Gen of Exodus. And it says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation 
of Israel that on the tenth day of the month every man shall take a lamb according to the father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to each that can eat, and shall make your count up for the lamb. And your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, and you shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, and on the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill the lamb at twilight. Verse 7, it says, And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts of the lintel of the house in which they eat it. And I'm going to jump down to verse 11. And it says, chapter uh, 12, 11, it says, In the manner that you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals ready on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it at haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt at night, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now that's a lot, but here's where we're at. We see that in the midst of the plagues, God in the midst of this devastation, God designs a way out. And this is not just for, just for Israel. This is for anyone. Egyptian, Israel, is someone from Israel, a Hebrew, does not matter. It's, this is an open invitation to anyone that hears. And the process would be, as I read, they would take this lamb, they'd bring it to their home, they'd keep it a few days, right? And then they'd kill it. They'd take the blood, they'd put it on their doorpost, they'd eat it, and everyone that was in the house, as the, as the angel of death would come over, they would pass over the house. They would be saved. It was interesting. It wasn't because the people in the house were good or bad. It wasn't even because they, were, um, they understood who God was or didn't. It, didn't. it didn't matter if they were, like I said, Hebrew or Egyptian. It didn't matter. Anybody that was in the home, anybody that came in, and the blood was seen on the lintel, they were saved. The blood is what saved them, not anything about themselves. So here's the thing. Some did it and some didn't, including Pharaoh. And at midnight when the angel came through, there was a great outcry in the land. Many firstborn died, including Pharaoh's firstborn son, the heir to his throne. And finally, Pharaoh had enough. And he sent them out. He said, get out of here. And they left. And their neighbors were like, get out of here. We'll give you our money. We'll give you all of our stuff. Here's my earrings. Just like, go. Like they, it's the Bible says they plundered Egypt. Like they left with all the jewelry, all the things, all the gold, all the stuff. And they left. It was exactly 430 years. You see, last week we looked at the covenant that um, God made with Abraham. And he said this was going to happen. And exactly 430 years they come out. And I think it's so they go, they come out, they camp out on this beach, they kind of corner themselves in, and immediately, right, we're going to see this pattern in the next, especially few weeks, forever probably, immediately they start complaining. Like, they're free finally. They're camping out on the beach. They're complaining like, we're trapped. Why'd you bring us out of here? We should be back in Egypt. Like, it was so much better back then. Like, our sons were being killed, and like, we were slaves. But like, they forgot so quickly what they came from. They start complaining, and God shows up. He puts this barrier of his presence between the Egyptians and, and themselves because Pharaoh changes his mind. He's like, get him back. Like, we lost our whole workforce. God shows up. He parts the sea. They come, 
and they walk through in safety. The Egyptian army follows, the waters come back, and they're destroyed. Which is a fun fact, they found Egyptian like chariot wheels and stuff at the bottom of the Red Sea. I wonder how it got there, right? So, this is a lot of story to cover, and I understand, but this is the why I wanted to race through the story itself. Because there are some points in here about God that I think are so powerful and so beautiful. Because this is ultimately, like I said, his story. The, the, the key things I want us to see is we see that God remains good. And God remains faithful despite us so often. The first thing really we want to see is that he remains faithful to Abraham and his family. What I mean by that is these, like, so often I think we can take people that we're looking at in stories and we, we raise them to a level of like, man, if I just could be like that. But these, these were normal people like us, people with issues and dysfunction and jacked up. Like Abraham, like I mentioned last week, like he wasn't like, he, he, he sold his wife essentially into slavery essentially. There was dysfunction in the family. The inhibit, there was all sorts of stuff going on. But yet God remained faithful. And his people became a nation, and this nation, with all the brokenness, was going to be the blessing to the whole world. That blessing was Jesus. And so with Joseph, the story of Joseph that we looked at, this beloved son, we see so many, like if you have spent time to study the story of Joseph, there is, it's rich, it is rich with like this hints to Jesus. It's so cool. Like, if you look at Joseph, like, like Joseph, Jesus was betrayed and sold by his brothers, by his friends. Like Joseph, Jesus um, had this evil that was committed against him, and God used this evil to bring salvation and to save. Like Joseph, um, the evil that was, com- that was committed against him brought great salvation. God made it a good thing. But unlike Joseph, where Joseph saved a nation, Jesus saved the world. And where Joseph brought just physical food, Jesus brought spiritual food. And where Joseph brought salvation that might last until they die and breathe their last, Jesus brought life that lasts eternity. And now in his resurrection, he does rule. He does rule over his brothers. He is the beloved son. But we also see the Passover lamb. I think many of us in this room have seen this connection before. We've talked about it before. But what's so beautiful about the Passover lamb, this this lamb of God that was sacrificed, is that those in the house of God do nothing but trust God's method. That's what these people did, right? The Egyptians or the Israelites, what was saved them wasn't their actions. It wasn't their goodness. It wasn't even, it was simply that God said, this is the method in which I'm gonna bring salvation and they believed it. They said, okay, it sounds weird. I'm going to sacrifice a lamb and put blood on my door. But like, I'm going to do it. I trust you. And with us as those that are followers of Jesus, and some of us that may not be, that method is still the same, that God has laid out a way for us to be with God, for us to be saved. And it is simply trusting Jesus, trusting the blood shed for us, covers us, trusting the righteousness he accrued for us is given to us. It's trusting Jesus. We must trust essentially in the blood of the lamb as well and trusting God's method and his promise and entering into his house, right? Like that's an action of faith. Like 
God, the Bible tells us that when we trust God and we believe in him, what happens is we're adopted into his household. We're brought into his family. And when we're in the house, we have forgiveness of sin, we have righteousness, all these things that's given to us, and we're, as we're trusting God, we are saved. Simply that. And what's cool is in the house, there's people that are jacked up and not jacked up, like there's different levels, like we're all a mess, and we're coming under the house of God, and in his goodness, he loves us, he changes and it makes us more like Jesus. But I think the thing that I'm most excited about sharing with you guys today is how God identifies himself. Because as we trust God, as we enter the house, we are brought into a relationship with the creator of the universe, the creator God, who says that my name is I Am. And I want us to think about this. The I Am aspect is the part that I couldn't shake this week as I was processing. Um, First off, God has called himself I Am in a lot of different ways. I Am this, I Am that. But one of my favorite things that God identifies himself, he'll say the I Am your provider, right? I am your provider. Not I will provide, not I did provide. He has. God has provided and God will provide. But that I am right now in this moment, I am what you need, but I'm also what you want. We're all looking for something. Those that are followers of Jesus and those that aren't. We're pursuing different things and we see that God in the I am, in the present is offering us himself. And I think that that's one thing that's so unique about God is that there's so many other religions and so many other gods that people have sacrificed to and worship, and often they're sacrificing to get. They're, they're worshiping to get. Maybe it's a crop. Maybe it's fertility. Maybe it's whatever, all these things. But God, the creator of the universe, the I am, is not just saying, I will provide those things for you too if it be my will, but he goes, I'm providing you myself. You get me. You get to be with me. I'm inviting you in to this relationship, this loving relationship that I've experienced for all of time. And we talked about that in week one. But not only I am your provider, but he, the, I am the presence. And this is something that is just, I think in today's day and age, I think this is so pertinent. In the very moment of time, in this very moment of time, God is saying, I am here right now. Right now. God is saying, I am present, right here, right now. And I think that this is important because for many of us, me, for sure, this is the hardest space to live in right now. What I mean by that is so often the past influences how we see ourselves and how we see the world around us. So often it's like, I am my past, right? Like maybe you had like, you're killed it in college. Like I'm still like this awesome quarterback, right? I can throw them over them hills, right? Like, or whatever, right? Or maybe it's the flip side, like I am not my past. Like I, like, but either way, like it's easy to live in the past. Like this is who I was. This is how the world was. This is how when things were great, right? But not only that, in these moments where maybe we're struggling with the past, we're constantly looking to the future like, that's the space I want to be at, or I'll figure that out when I get there. But like, it's like I'm either enjoying the past, or I'm, I'm, I'm mourning the past, or I'm pursuing the future and hoping things get better, but living in this moment, right now, the space where the I am is present. He'll be there in the future, and he's going to be there in the past. I'm not saying he's, but this is where God's at. I am. Being present in the moment, I think, is one of the hardest places to be. The space where God is saying, here I am. 
This is where God is waiting for us and saying, come and be with me. I'm here. You are loved right now. Now you will be loved if you, do, if you kill it from here on out. Not you were loved in the past, but you're loved right now in this moment. God's present and going, be with me. But not only that, we see that the I am affects, I think, the power of the gospel. What I mean by that is that God is at work on our behalf right now. And I've talked about this many, many times, and you'll hear me talk about it many, many more times. When I say the gospel, what I mean is the culmination of God working in the world to pursue humanity and make a way for humans to be with him that culminates in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Right? The good news, I would say, start to make the gospels are all called the gospels, right? And we see the very end, the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's this life of Jesus that culminates. It's the culmination of God's story at play. It's God redeeming humanity, making a way for us to be with him ultimately by faith in Jesus. But what's interesting about the gospel is that so often I have seen it just relegated to the past and to the future. And what I mean by that, it says, Jesus died on the cross for your sins so you could go to heaven when you die, which is 100% true, right? So that takes care of my past. I'm forgiven. And you get to go to heaven when you die. It takes care of my future, right? So like, I know that I'm going to heaven. And so what often happens when that is all I see the gospel as is I'm constantly living like, this is terrible right now, but when I die, I go to heaven. Like, or it's this idea that I'm looking so far like, Maybe, like, I just can't wait to be in heaven. And what ends up happening is it leaves very little handles or, like, how do we live life? Like, we, we're living right now, right? Like, we have a life to live that God has placed us. He has a purpose for our lives, and he's working in us to image him so that we can communicate something about God to the whole world. So what does the gospel have to do with me right now? And I think the Bible is clear that the power of the gospel is not just for my past, but it's also for present. The I am is present. The power of the gospel is present. This right now, I, when I came to follow Jesus, being reminded and told that I'm loved by God, that I can be forgiven, that I'm acceptable to God because Jesus and Jesus alone, I need to be reminded of that every single day. I need to come to spaces where maybe I'm trying to pursue different things or I'm trying to find value in different things that's outside of Jesus or maybe I'm trying to work off sin or whatever it may be. Like, I need to be reminded that, no, right now in this space, God is present. He loves me. He sees my struggle. He sees my pain, whatever it may be, and he has offered himself to me. He has forgiven me of the sin that I'm ashamed of. He's given me a life that awaits for me in glory. But right now, God's presence is here and his, the power of the gospel, that good news of who he is, knows that I can be fully accepted by God because of Jesus' work on my behalf and that I'm forgiven by God because of Jesus' work on the cross. So I can't work off my sin and I can't work any harder for God to love me or accept me anymore. I simply have to sit in the house and trust God's method. That is important for me right now. That's important for you right now. Like, we all need to be reminded of that truth. Because if not, then we're going to be running to work off our brokenness. We're going to be running to provide value and show ourselves approved and hope that God will love us or like us or bless us more because we're doing better things for him. And that is exhausting. 
It's like being on a treadmill and never getting off. Am I running hard enough? Am I running far enough? Am I doing enough for God to like me or love me? Am I doing what he called me to do? If I'm not, what if I'm not doing what he called me? Am, Am I good enough? Am I value enough? And God's saying, no, like right now in this space, I've made a way for you to be known and loved by me and that your identity is fixed by me because I called you my child. I've adopted you into my family and you are forgiven and you're accepted. That is the power of the gospel for us believers and for any of you in this room that has not come to follow Jesus, that is for you as well. And the beauty of the power of the gospel that's right now that we're loved is that God is inviting us in, both those that are followers of him, to be with him today. And he's inviting you in that may not be following him yet to come and experience this loving relationship that he offers the world. And he promises that his presence will not just be there waiting for you, but that he'll put his presence within you by the power of the Holy Spirit. That he will come and live inside of you and you can experience and enjoy and interact with God whenever you like. You don't have to go to a temple. You don't have to go to a church. You don't have to go anywhere. You can be right now. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit and he resides within us. The I am right now is present. He is still present. He is taking care of your past and he's taking care of your future so that right now you could be with him. And in the future, He'll be there waiting. In this moment, in this place, the creator of time and space himself is inviting you to be with him, inviting you to enjoy his love, his grace, and his peace, and to enjoy him himself. And so for those of us that have trusted him, I want you to encourage you to continue to enjoy God now in his presence. There's nothing that you've done There's nothing that you are doing that can hinder that because Jesus has made a way. So even if there's shame and like you don't understand where I've been, I've been hard, I've been callous, I've I've been angry, whatever it may be, God's saying come. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, if you haven't chose to follow after Jesus, you haven't chose to trust him, he's inviting you to do that as well. He's inviting you to trust him. And it's not, it's not super complicated. Like, I want to I wanna let you know, like, there's not like a big ceremony you have to go through. It's simply trusting Jesus, the promises that he gave, that he's died the death that you deserve. He lived the life that you can't live. And when you do that and you accept that you're forgiven and his righteousness is given to you as a gift, and when God looks at you, he sees his son and that you're fully accepted and fully loved and so you can come to God and let his Holy Spirit live within you and begin to change you from the inside out. And that could be simply saying, yes, Lord. It could be simply a prayer. It's between you and the Lord. And if you have any questions about that, please come and talk to me afterwards. I'd love to walk you through that if you want.